the family of Dashwood. Oh, apologies. My name is Amy Vanderpool, and I'm going to be reading from Jane Austen's Sense and Sensibility, Chapter 1. The family of Dashwood had long settled in Sussex. Their estate was large, and their residence was at Northland Park, in the center of their property, where for many generations they had lived in so respectable a manner as to engage the general good opinion of their surrounding acquaintance. The late owner of this estate was a single man who lived to a very advanced age and who for many years of his life had a constant companion and housekeeper and his sister. But her death, which happened 10 years before his own, produced a great alteration in his home, for to supply her loss, he invited and received into his house the family of his nephew, Mr. Henry Dashwood, the legal inheritor of Northland Estate, and the person to whom he intended to bequeath it. In the society of his nephew and niece and their children, the old gentleman's days were comfortably spent. His attachment to them all increased. The constant attention of Mr. and Mrs. Henry Dashwood to his wishes, which proceeded not merely from interest, but from goodness of heart, gave him every degree of solid comfort which his age could receive, and the cheerfulness of the children added a relish to his existence. By a former marriage, Mr. Henry Dashwood had one son, by his present lady, three daughters. The son, a steady, respectable young man, was amply provided for by the fortune of his mother, which had been large, and half of which devoted on him on his coming of age, which was devolved on him by his coming of age. By his own marriage, likewise, to which happened soon afterwards, he added to his wealth. To him, therefore, the succession to the Northland estate was not so really important as to his sisters, for their fortune, independent of what might arise to them from their fathers inheriting that property, could be but small. Their mother had nothing, and their father only seven thousand pounds in his own disposal, for the remaining moiety of his wife's fortune was also secured to her child, and he had only a life interest in it. The old gentleman died. His will was read, and like almost every other will, gave as much disappointment as pleasure. He was neither so unjust nor so ungrateful as to leave his estate from his nephew, but he left it to him on such terms as destroyed half the value of the bequest. Mr. Dashwood had wished for it more for the sake of his wife and daughters than for himself or his son, but to his son and his son's child, a child of four years old, it was secured in such a way as to leave himself no power of providing for those who were most dear to him and who most needed a provision by any charge on the estate or by any sale of its valuable woods. The whole was tied up for the benefit of this child who, in occasional visits with his father and mother at Northland, had so far gained on the affections of his uncle by such attractions as are by no means unusual in children of two or three years old an imperfect articulation, an earnest desire of having his own way, many cunning tricks, and a great deal of noise as to outweigh all the value of the attention which, for years, he had received from his niece and her daughters. He meant not to be unkind, however, and as a mark of his infection for the three girls, he left them a thousand pounds apiece. Mr. Dashwood's disappointment was, at first, severe, but his temper was cheerful and sanguine, and he might reasonably hope to live many years, and by living economically, lay by a considerable sum from the produce of an estate already large and capable of almost immediate improvement. But the fortune, which had been so tardy in coming, was his only twelve months. He survived his uncle no longer, and ten thousand pounds, including the late legacies, was all that remained for his widows and daughters." 
His son was sent for as soon as his dot as his danger was known, and to him Mr. Dashwood recommended with all the strength and urgency which illness could command the interest of his mother-in-law and sisters. Mr. John Dashwood had not the strong feelings of the rest of the family, but he was affected by a recommendation of such a nature at a time and promised to do everything in his power to make them comfortable. His father was rendered easy by such an assurance, and Mr. John Dashwood had then leisure to consider how much there might be prudently in his power to do for them. He was not an ill-disposed young man, unless to be rather cold-hearted and rather selfish as to be ill-disposed, but he was in general well-respected, for he conducted himself with propriety in the discharge of his ordinary duties. Had he married a more amiable woman, he might have made it more, he might have been made still more respectable than he was. He might have been able, he might have even been made amiable himself, for he was very young when he married and very fond of his wife. But Mrs. John Dashwood was a strong caricature of himself, more narrow-minded and selfish. When he gave his promise to his father, he meditated within himself to increase the fortunes of his sisters by the present of a thousand pounds apiece. He then really thought himself equal to it. The prospect of 4,000 a year, in addition to his present income, besides the remaining half of his own mother's fortune, warmed his heart and made him feel capable of generosity. Yes, he would give them 3,000 pounds. It would be liberal and handsome. It would be enough to make them completely easy. 3,000 pounds. He could spare so considerable a sum with little inconvenience. He thought of it all day long and for many days successively, and he did not repent. No sooner was his father's funeral over than Mrs. John Dashwood, without sending any notice of her intention to her mother-in-law, arrived with her child and their attendants. No one could dispute her right to come. The house was her husband's from the moment of his father's decease, but the indelicacy of her conduct was so much the greater, and to a woman in Mrs. Dashwood's situation, with only common feelings, must have been highly unpleasing. But in her mind, there was a sense of honor so keen, a generosity so romantic, that any offense of the kind, by whatsoever given or received, was to her a source of immovable disgust. Mrs. John Dashwood had never been a favorite with any of her husband's families, but she had no opportunity till the present of showing them, of showing them how little attention to the comfort of other people she could act when the occasion required it. So acutely did Mrs. Dashwood feel this ungracious behavior, and so earnestly did she despise her daughter-in-law for it, that on the arrival of the latter, she would have quitted the house forever had not the entreaty of her eldest girl induced her to first reflect on the propriety of going, and her own tender love for all three children determined her afterwards to stay, and for their sakes avoid a breach with their brother." Eleanor, this eldest daughter, whose advice was so effectual, possessed a strength of understanding and coolness of judgment, which qualified her, through only 19, to be the, the counselor of her mother, and enabled her frequently to counteract to the advantage of them all, that eagerness of the mind in Mrs. Dashwood, which must generally have led to imprudence. She had an excellent heart, her disposition was affectionate, and her feelings were strong, but she knew how to govern them. It was a knowledge which her mother had yet to learn, and which one of her sisters had resolved never to be taught. Marianne's abilities were, in many respects, quite equal to Eleanor's. She was sensible and clever, but eager in everything. Her sorrows, her joys, could have no moderation. She was generous, amiable, interesting. She was everything but prudent. The resemblance between her and her mother was strikingly great. Eleanor saw with concern the excess of her sister's sensibility, 
but by Mrs. Dashwood, it, it was valued and cherished. They encouraged each other now in the violence of their affliction. The agony of grief, which overpowered them at first, was voluntarily renewed, was sought for, was created again and again. They gave themselves up wholly to their sorrow, seeking increase of wretchedness in every reflection that could afford it, and resolved against ever admitting consolation in future. Eleanor, too, was deeply afflicted, but she had... But still she could struggle. She could exert herself. She could consult with her brother, could receive her sister-in-law on arrival and could treat and treat her with proper attention and could strive to rouse her mother to similar exertion and encourage her to similar forbearance. Margaret, the other sister, was a good-humored, well-disposed girl. But as she had already imbibed a good deal of Marianne's romance without having much of her sense, she did not at 13 bid fair to equal her sisters at a more advanced period of life. Chapter two, Mrs. John Dashwood now install her, installed herself mistress of Norland and her mother and sisters-in-law were degraded to the condition of visitors. As such, however, they were treated by her with quiet civility and by her husband with as much kindness as he could feel toward anybody beyond himself, his wife and their child. He really pressed them with some earnestness to consider Norland as their home and as no plan appeared so eligible to Mrs. Dashwood as remaining there she still could accommodate herself with the house in the neighborhood. His invitation was accepted. A continuance in a place where everything reminded her of her former delight was exactly what suited her mind. In seasons of cheerfulness, no temper could be more cheerful than hers or possess in greater degree that sanguine expectation of happiness, which is happiness itself. But in sorrow, she must be equally carried away by her fancy and as far beyond consolation as in pleasure, she was beyond alloy. Mrs. John Dashwood did not at all approve of what her husband intended to do for his sisters. To take 3,000 pounds from their fortune of their dear little boy would be impoverishing him to the most dreadful degree. She begged him to think again on the subject. How could he answer to himself to rob his child and his only child too of so large a sum? And what possible claim could the Miss Dashwoods, who were related to him only by half-blood, which she considered as no relationship at all, have on the generosity to such a large amount? It was very well known that no affection was ever supposed to exist between the children of any man by different marriages. And why was he to ruin himself and their poor little Harry by giving away all his money to his half-sisters? It was my father's last request to me, replied her husband, that I should assist his widow and daughters. He did not know what he was talking of, or dare I say, ten to one, but he was lightheaded at the time. Had he been in his right senses, he could not have thought of such a thing as begging you to give away half your fortune from your own child. He did not stipulate for any particular sum, my dear Fanny. He only requested me in terms, general terms, to assist them and to make their situation more comfortable than it was in his power to do. Perhaps it would have been as well if he had left it wholly to myself. He could hardly suppose I should neglect them. But as he required the promise, I could no less... I could do no less than give it. At least I thought so at the time. The promise, therefore, was given and must be performed. Something must be done for them whenever they leave Norland and settle in a new home. Well, then let something be done for them, but that something need not be 3,000 pounds. Consider, she added, that when the money is part once parted with, it can never return. Your sisters will marry and it will be gone forever. If indeed it could ever be restored to our poor little boy, why, to be sure, said her husband very gravely, that would make a great difference. 
The time may come when Harry will regret that so large a sum was parted with. If he should have a numerous family, for instance, it would be very, it would be a very convenient addition. To be sure it would. Perhaps then it would be better for all parties if the sum were diminished by one half. Five hundred pounds would be a prodigious increase to their fortunes. Oh, beyond anything great. What brother on earth would do half as much for his sisters, even if really his sisters, and as it is, only half-blood? But you have such a generous spirit. I would not wish to do anything mean, he replied. One had rather on such occasions do too much than too little. No one, at least, can think I have not done enough for them, even themselves. They can hardly expect more. There is no knowing what they expect, said the lady, but they are not to think of their expectations. The question is, what can you afford to do? Certainly, and I think I may afford to give them 500 pounds apiece. As it is, without any addition of mine, they will each have above 3,000 pounds on their mother's death, a very comfortable fortune for any young woman. To be sure it is, and indeed, it strikes me that they can want no addition at all. They will have 10,000 pounds divided amongst them. If they marry, they will be sure of doing well, and if they do not, they may all live comfortably together on the interest of 10,000 pounds. That is very true, and therefore I do not know whether, upon the whole, it would be more advisable to do something for their mother while she lives than for them, something of the annu annuity kind, I mean. The sisters would feel the good effects of it all, as well as herself. A hundred a year would make them all perfectly comfortable. His wife hesitated a little, however, in giving her consent to this plan. To be sure, said she, it is better than parting with 1,500 pounds at once. But then if Mrs. Dashwood should live 15 years, we shall be completely taken in. 15 years, my dear Fanny, her life cannot be worth half that purchase. Certainly not. But if you observe, people always live forever when there is annuity to be paid for them. And she is very stout and healthy and hardy, hardly 40. An annuity is very serious business. It comes over and over every year and there is no getting rid of it. You are not aware of what you're doing. I've had I've known a great deal of trouble in annuities, for my mother was clogged with the payment of three old superannuated servants by my father's will, and it's amazing how disagreeable she found it. Twice a year, these annuities were to be paid, and there was the trouble of getting it to them, and then one of them was said to have died, and then afterwards, it turned out to be no such thing. My mother was quite sick of it. Her income was not her own, she said, with such perpetual claims on it, and it was the more unkind in my father, because otherwise the money would have been entirely at my mother's disposal without any restriction whatever. It has given me such an abhorrence of an annuities that I'm sure I would not pin myself down to the payment of one for all the world. It is certainly an unpleasant thing, replied Mr. Dashwood, to have those kind of yearly drains on one's income. One's fortune, as your mother justly says, is not one's own. To be tied down to the regular payment of such a sum on every rent day is by no means desirable. It takes away one's independence. Undoubtedly, and after all, you have no thanks for it. They think themselves secure. You do no more than what is expected, and it raises no gratitude at all. If I were you, whatever I did should be done at my own discretion entirely. It would not bind myself to allow them anything yearly. It may be inconvenient for some years to spare a hundred or even fifty pounds from our own expenses. I believe you are right, my love. It would better be better than there should be no annuity. It will be better that there should be no annuity in the case. Whatever I may give them occasionally will be of far greater assistance than a yearly allowance because they would only enlarge their style of living if they felt sure of a larger income. 
I would not be sixpence the richer for it at the end of the year. It would certainly be the much best way. A present of 50 pounds now and then will prevent their ever being distressed for money and will, I think, be amply discharging my promise to my father. To be sure it will, indeed, to say the truth, I am convinced within myself that your father had no idea of your giving them any money at all. The assistance he thought of, I dare say, was only such as might be reasonably expected of you. For instance, such as looking out for a comfortable small house for them, helping them to move their things, and sending them presents of fish and game and so forth whenever they are in season. I'll lay my life that he meant nothing farther. Indeed, it would be very strange and unreasonable if he did. But do consider, my my dear Mr. Dashwood, how excessively comfortable your mother-in-law and her daughters may live on the interest of £7,000. Besides, the £1,000 belonging to each of the girls, which brings them in £50 a year apiece, and of course they will pay their mother for their board out of it. Altogether, they will have 500 a year amongst them. And what on earth can four women want for more than that? They will live so cheap. Their housekeeping will be nothing at all. They will have no carriage, no horses, and hardly any servants. They will keep no company and can have no expenses of any kind. Only conceive of how comfortable they will be. 500 a year. I am sure I cannot imagine how they would spend half of it as to you. And as to you giving them more, it is quite absurd to think of it. They will be much more able to give you something. Upon my word, said Mr. Dashwood, I believe you are perfectly right. My father certainly could mean nothing more by his request to me than what you say. I clearly understand it now, and I will strictly fulfill my engagement by such acts of assistance and kindness to them as you have described. When my mother removes into another house, my services shall be readily given to accommodate her as far as I can. Some little present of furniture may be too some little present of furniture too may be acceptable then. Certainly returned Mrs. John Dashwood. But however, one thing must be considered. When your father and mother moved to Norland through the furniture of Stanhill was sold, all the china plate and the linen was saved and is now left to your mother. Her house will therefore be almost completely fitted up as soon as she takes it. That is a material consult consideration undoubtedly a valuable legacy indeed and yet some of the plate would have been very pleasant addition to our own stock here yes and the set of breakfast china is twice as handsome as what belongs to this house a great deal too handsome in my opinion for any place they can ever afford to live in but however so it is your father thought only of them and i must say this that you owe no particular gratitude to him nor attention to his wishes for we very well know that if he could, he would have left almost everything in the world to them. This argument was irresistible. It gave his intentions whatever of a decision was wanting before, and he finally resolved that it would be absolutely unnecessary, if not highly indecorous, to do more the widow, to do more for the widow and children of his father than such a kind neighborly act his own wife pointed out. Chapter three. Mrs. Dashwood remained at New Orleans several months not from any disinclination to move when the sight of every well-known spot ceased to raise the violent emotion which it produced for a while, for when her spirits began to revive, her mind became capable of other, some other exertion than that of heightening its affliction by melancholy rem remembrances. She was impatient to be gone and indefatigable in her inquiries for a suitable dwelling in the neighborhood of Norland. For to remove far from that beloved spot was impossible, but she could hear of no situation that was at once answered 
that was at once answered of her notions of comfort and ease and suited the prudence of her eldest daughter, whose steadier judgment rejected several houses as too large for their income, which her mother would have approved. Mrs. Dashwood had been informed by her husband of the solemn promise on the part of his son in their favor, which gave comfort to his last earthly reflections. She doubted the sincerity of this insurance, assurance no more than he had doubted it himself. And she thought of it for her daughter's sake with satisfaction, though as for herself, she was persuaded that a much smaller provision than 7,000 pounds would support her affluence. For their brother's sake, too, for the sake of her own heart, she rejoiced, and she reproached herself for being unjust to his merit before and believing him incapable of generosity. His attentive behavior to herself and his sisters convinced her that their welfare was dear to him, and for a long time she firmly relied on the liberality of his intentions. The contempt which she had very early in their acquaintance felt for her daughter-in-law, which was very much increased by further knowledge of her character, which half a year's residence in her family afforded, and perhaps in spite of every consideration of politeness or maternal of affection on the one side of the former, the two ladies might have found it impossible to have lived together so long, had not a particular circumstance occurred to give still greater eligibility, according to the op opinions of Mrs. Dashwood, to her daughter's continued at continuance at Norland. This circumstance was a growing attachment between her eldest girl and the brother of Mrs. John Dashwood, a gentlemanlike and pleasing young man who was introduced to their acquaintance soon after his sister's establishment at New Orleans and who had spent the greater part of his time here. Some mothers might have encouraged the intimacy from motives of interest, for Edward Ferris was the eldest son of a man who had died very rich, and some might have repressed it from motives of prudence, for, except for a trifling sum, the whole of his fortune depended on the will of his mother. But Mrs. Dashwood was alike uninfluenced by either consideration. It was enough for her that he appeared to be amiable, that he loved her daughter, and that Eleanor returned the partiality. It was contrary to every doctrine of her, of hers that the difference of fortune should keep any couple asunder who were attracted by resemblance of disposition and that Eleanor's merit should not be acknowledged by everyone who knew her was to her comprehension impossible. Edward Ferris was not recommended to their good opinion by any peculiar graces of a person or address. He was not handsome and his manners required intimacy to make them pleasing. He was too diffident to do justice to himself, but when his natural shyness was overcome, his behavior gave every indication of an open affection at heart. His understanding was good and his education had given it solid improvement, but he was neither fitted by abilities nor disposition to answer the wishes of his mother and sister, who longed to see him distinguished as they hardly knew what. They wanted him to make a fine figure in the world in some manner or the other. His mother wished to interest him in political concerns, to get him into Parliament, or to see him connected with some of the great men of the day. Mrs. John Dashwood wished it likewise, but in the meanwhile, till one of these superior blessings could be attained, it would have quieted her ambition to see him driving a barouche. But Edward had no turn for great men or barouches. All his wishes centered in domestic comfort and the quiet private life. Fortunately, he had a younger brother who was much more promising. Edward had been staying several weeks in the house before he engaged much of Mrs. Dashwood's attention, for she was at that time in such affliction as rendered her careless of surrounding objects. She saw only what 
that he was quiet and unobtrusive, and she liked him for it. He did not disturb the wretchedness of her mind by ill-timed conversation. She was first called to observe and approve him farther by a reflection which Eleanor chanced one day to make on the difference between him and his sister. It was a contrast, contrast which recommended him most forcibly to her mother. It is enough, said she, to say that he is unlike Fanny is enough. It implies everything amiable. I love him already. I think you will like him, said Eleanor, when you know more of him. Like him, replied her mother with a smile. I can feel no sentiment of approbation inferior to love. You may esteem him. I have never yet known what is, what it was to separate esteem and love. Mrs. Dashwood now took pains to get acquainted with him. Her manners were attaching and soon banished his reserve. She speedily comprehended all his merits, and the persuasion of his regard for Eleanor perhaps assisted her penetration. But she really felt assured of his worth, and even that quietness of manner which was mitigated against all her established ideas of what a young man's address ought to be was no longer uninteresting when she knew his heart to be warm and his temper affectionate. No sooner did she perceive any symptom of love in his behavior to Eleanor than she considered their serious attachment as certain and looked forward to their marriage as rapidly approaching. In a few months, my dear Marianne, said she, Eleanor will be in all probability settled for life. We shall miss her, but she will be happy. Oh, mamma, how should we do without her? My love, it will be scarcely a separation. We shall live within a few miles of each other and shall meet every day of our lives. You will gain a brother, a real affectionate brother. I have the highest opinion in the world of Edward's heart. But you look grave, Marianne. Do you disapprove of your sister's choice? Perhaps, said Marianne. I may consider it with some surprise. Edward is very amiable, and I love him tenderly. But yet, he is not the kind of young man. There is something wanting. His figure is not striking. It has none of the grace which I should expect in the man who could seriously attach to my sister. His eyes want all that spirit, that fire, which at once announced virtue and intelligence. And besides this, I'm afraid, Mama, he has no real taste. Music seems scarcely to attract him. And though he admires Eleanor's drawings very much, it is not the admiration of a person who can understand their worth. It is evident in spite of his frequent attention to her while she draws that, in fact, he knows nothing of the matter. He admires as a lover, not as a connoisseur. To satisfy me, those characters must be united. I could not be happy with a man whose taste did not in every point coincide with my own. He must enter into all feelings, the same books, the same music, the same charm as both. Oh, Mama, how spiritless, how tame was Edward's manner when reading to us last night. I felt for my sister most severely. Yet she bore it with so much composure. She seemed scarcely to notice. I could hardly keep to my seat to hear those beautiful word lines, which I have frequently almost driven me wild, pronounced with such impenetrable calmness, such dreadful indifference. He would certainly have done more justice to simple and elegant prose. I thought so at the time, but you would give him Cowper. Nay, mamma, if he is not to be animated by Cowper, but we must allow for the difference of taste. Eleanor has not my feelings and therefore she may overlook it and be happy with him. But it would have broke my heart, and I loved him, to hear him read with so little sensibility. Mama, the more I know of the world, the more I am convinced that I shall never see a man whom I can really love. I require so much. He must have all Edward's virtues, and his person and manners must be ornament, and his goodness, and his goodness with every possible charm. Remember, my love, that you are not seventeen. It is yet too early in your life to despair of such happiness. 
Why should you be less fortunate than your mother? In one circumstance only, Marianne, may your destiny be different from hers. Chapter four. What a pity it is, Eleanor, said Marianne, that Edward should have no taste for drawing. No taste for drawing, replied Eleanor. Why should you think so? He does not draw himself, indeed, but he has great pleasure in seeing the performances of other people, and I assure you that he is by no means deficient in natural taste, though he's not had opportunities of improving it. Had he ever been in the way of learning, I think he would have drawn very well. He distrusts his own judgment and matters so much that he's always unwilling to give his opinion on any picture, but he has an innate propriety and simplicity of taste, which in general direct him perfectly right. Marianne was afraid of offending and said no more on the subject, but the kind of approbation which Eleanor described as excited in him by the drawings of other people was far from that of rapturous delight, which, in her opinion, could alone be called taste. Yet, though smiling within herself at the mistake, she honored her sister for that blind partiality to Edward which produced it. I hope, Marianne, continued Eleanor, you do not consider him as deficient in general taste. Indeed, I think I may say that you cannot, for your behavior to him is perfectly cordial. And if that were your opinion, I am sure you would never be civil to him. Marianne hardly knew what to say. She would not wound the feelings of her sister, wound the feelings of her sister on any account. And yet to say what she did not believe was impossible. At length, she replied, do not be offended, Eleanor. If my praise of him is not in everything equal to your own sense of his merits. I have not had so many opportunities of estimating the minuter proper propensities of his mind, minuter propensities of his mind, his inclinations and tastes as, as you have. But I have the highest opinion in the world of his goodness and sense. I think him everything that is worthy and amiable. I am sure, replied Eleanor with a smile, that his dearest friends could not be dissatisfied with such a commendation as that. I do not perceive how you could express yourself more warmly. Marianne was rejoiced to find her sister so pleased. Of his sense and goodness, continued Eleanor, no one can, I think, be in doubt who has seen him often enough to engage him in an unreserved conversation. The excellence of his understanding and his principles can be concealed only by that shyness, which too often keeps him silent. You know enough of him to do justice in his solid worth, but his minuter propensities, as you call them, you have from peculiar circumstances been kept more ignorant than myself. He and I have been at times thrown a good deal together while you have been wholly engrossed on the most affectionate principle by my mother. I have seen a great deal of him. I have studied his sentiments and his heart, his opinion on subjects of literature and taste. And upon the whole, I venture to pronounce that his mind is well-informed, his enjoyment of books exceedingly great, his imagination lively, his observation just and correct, and his taste delicate and pure. His abilities in every respect improve as much as upon acquaintance as his manners and person. At first sight, his address is certainly not striking, and his person can hardly be called handsome till the expression of his eyes, which are uncommonly good, at the general sweetness of his countenance is perceived. At present, I know him so well that I think him really handsome, or at least almost so. What say you, Marian? I shall very soon think him handsome, Eleanor. I do not know... I do not now. When you tell me to love him as a brother, I shall no more see imperfection in his face than I do now in his heart. Eleanor start, started at this declaration and was sorry for the warmth she had betrayed. She had been betrayed into in speaking of him. 
She felt that Edward stood very high in her opinion. She believed the regard to be mutual, but she required greater certainty to make Marianne's conviction of their attachment agreeable to her. She knew what Marianne and her mother conjectured at one moment. They believed the next, that with them, to wish was to hope, and to hope was to expect. She tried to explain the real state of the case to her sister. I do not attempt to deny, she said, that I think very highly of him, that I greatly esteem him, that I like him. Marianne here burst forth with indignation. Esteem him, like him, cold-hearted Eleanor, oh, worse than cold-hearted, ashamed of being otherwise. Use those words again, and I will leave the room this moment. Eleanor could not help laughing. Excuse me, she said, and be assured that I meant no offense to you by speaking in so quiet a way of my own feelings. Believe them to be stronger than I have declared. Believe them, in short, to be such as his merit and the suspicion, the hope of his affection for me may warrant without imprudence or folly. But further than this, you must not believe. I am by no means assured of his regard for me. There are moments when the extent of it seems doubtful. Until his sentiments are fully known, you cannot wonder at my wishing to avoid any encouragement of my own partiality by believing or calling it more than it is. In my heart, I feel a little... Scarcely any doubt for his preference, but there are other points to be considered besides his inclination. He is very far from being independent. What his mother really is, we cannot know. But from Fanny's occasional mention of her conduct and opinions, we have never been disposed to think her amiable. And I'm very much mistaken if Edward is not himself aware that there would be many difficulties in his way if he were to wish to marry a woman who had not either a great fortune or high rank. Marianne was astonished to find how much the imagination of her mother and herself had outstripped the truth. And you really are not engaged to him, said she. Yet it certainly will soon happen, but the two advantages will proceed from this delay. I shall not lose you so soon, and Edward will have greater opportunity of improving that natural taste for your favorite pursuit, which must be so indispensably necessary to your future felicity. Oh, if he should be so far stimulated by your genius as to learn to draw himself, how delightful it would be. Eleanor had given her real opinion to her sister. She could not consider her partiality for Edward in so prosperous a state as Marianne had believed it. There was at times a want of spirits about him, which, if it did not denote indifference, spoke of something almost unsurprising. A doubt of her regard, supposing him to feel it, need not to give him more than inequitude. It would not be likely to produce that dejection of mind which frequently attended him. A more reasonable cause might be found in the dependent situation which forbade the indulgence of his indulgence of his infection. She knew that his mother neither behaved to him so as to make him his home more comfortable at present, nor gave him any assurance that he might form a home for himself without strictly attending to her views for her aggrandizement. With such a knowledge as this, it was impossible for Eleanor to feel easy on the subject. She was far from depending on that result of his preference for her, which her mother and sister still considered as certain. Nay, the longer they were together, the more doubtful seemed the nature of this regard, and sometimes, for a few painful minutes, she believed it to be no more than friendship. But whatever might, might really be its limits, it was enough, when perceived by his sister, to make her uneasy, and at the same time, which was still more common, to make her uncivil. She took the first opportunity of affronting her mother-in-law on the occasion, 
talking to her so expressively of her brother's great expectations of Mrs. Ferris's resolution that both her sons should marry well, and of her danger at attending any young woman who attempted to draw him in, that Mrs. Dashwood can neither pretend to be unconscious nor endeavor to be calm. She gave her she gave an answer which marked her contempt and instantly left the room, resolving that whatever might be at the inconvenience or expense of so sudden a removal, her beloved Eleanor should not be exposed to another week of such insinuations. In this state of her spirit, a letter was delivered to her from the post, which contained a proposal particularly well-timed. It was the offer of a small house on very easy terms, belonging to a relation of her own, a gentleman of consequence and property in Devonshire. The letter was from this gentleman himself, written in the true spirit of friendly accommodation. He understood that she was in need of a dwelling, and though the house he offered was merely a cottage, he assured her that everything should be done to it which she might think necessary if the situation pleased her. He earnestly pressed her, after giving the particulars of the house and garden to come with her daughters to Barton Park, the place of his own residence, from whence she might judge herself whether Barton Cottage, for the houses were in the same parish, could, by any alteration, be made comfortable to her. He seemed really anxious to accommodate them, and the whole of this letter was written in so friendly a style as could not fail of giving pleasure to his cousin, more especially at a moment when she was suffering under the cold and unfeeling behavior of her nearer connections. She needed no time for deliberation or inquiry. Her resolution was formed as she read, the situation of Barton in a country so far distant from Sussex as Devonshire, which but a few hours before would have been a sufficient objection to outweigh every possible advantage belonging to the place, was now its first recommendation. To quit the neighborhood of Norland was no longer an evil. It was an object of desire. It was a blessing in comparison to the misery of continuing in her, as her daughter-in-law's guest. And to remove forever from that beloved place would be less painful than to inhabit or visit it while such a woman was its mistress. She instantly wrote Sir John Middleton her acknowledgments of his kindness and her acceptance of his proposal, and then hastened to shew both letters to her daughters that she might be secure in their approbation before her answer was said. Eleanor had always thought it would be more prudent for them to settle at some distance from New Orleans than immediately amongst their present acquaintance. On that head, therefore, it was not for her to oppose her mother's intention of removing into Devonshire. The house, too, as described by Sir John, was on so simple a scale and the rent so uncommonly moderate as to leave her no right of objection on either point. And therefore, though it was not a plan which brought any charm to her fancy, though it was a removal from the vicinity of Norland beyond her wishes, she made no attempt to dissuade her mother from sending her letter of acquiescence.